0: Turn to Psalms 126. Now, if you're here for the first time this morning, you're here in the middle of this little series, we're talking about the joy set before us. Let me update you. We started with Hebrews 12, where the Bible says concerning Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That whatever he had to go through to realize that joy was worth it. And then it also says that there is a joy set before us. But in order for us to achieve that joy, there's also a cross in our life. There's also difficulties in our life. And we must really zero in on what is set before us also. And not be discouraged in this life by all the setbacks and all the difficulties that you face because you will in this life. The devil's never gonna run from you or leave you alone. He keeps coming at you, knowing that most, most people in this world give up easily and they're set back easily and they throw in the towel easily and look for something else and they just sort of give in and cave in. One of the real weights that we have to cast aside and the sin that's thus so easily beset us had to do with things that the devil does to us that we respond to. The sin, I think, the particular sin that so easily besets us is quitting. Lack of endurance. Because the first part of this whole chapter, the first several verses of Hebrews 12, speaks about consider Jesus who endured, lest you be faint and wearied in your own minds. That we're supposed to put our hand to a plow and seeing what we get at the end of this field, we're supposed to hang on that what is set before us should be worth whatever we go through. Then we came to Psalm 126, and Psalm 126 tells us that when the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, we were like those that dream, and we zeroed in on the word captive or captivity, because when a person is made a captive, that person becomes Bound to whoever captured them. They become a servant to that one. They are not free anymore to do what they'd like to do. They have to do what they are told to do by somebody else. And they are, in that sense, bound. They're held captive by someone or by something. And it doesn't take anybody long, if you've been a Christian for a while, to look around in the world, especially in the church, and know that a lot of people are bound by a lot of things. They can't get away from it. Things control them. Something seems to have gotten their hands on people, and they just can't give it up or can't get away from it or can't stop it. They're bound by it. It troubles the people, it bothers people, but it's true. I would like to be free from all of these things that just weight me down, but I just can't seem to get away from it. And I am keep repenting of the same old thing all the time. We're bound. We're not bound in the sense that we can't speak and function, not like that. But spiritually, there's a lack of gladness of heart, of a true, spiritual, cheerful countenance. I didn't mean to imply last week that nobody here has joy, because I'm here with you. But a lot of people show their difficulties, and they don't hide it very well at all. They aren't free to worship. They could, but they just can't seem to get into it. And yet the Bible requires us to offer a sacrifice of praise. We offer to God, not because we feel anything, but because it's what He wants. But some people can't do that. And so we want to have a cheerful countenance. We should have a cheerful countenance if we believe what is promised us. If we believe what the Bible says about what God will do for us now and what is laid up for us in the days to come, in the next life, if you really believe that, no matter what you're looking at today, you have something to rejoice about. You have a reason to be cheerful, and gathering together is an occasion to do that. God wants that from us. He wants us to show him that no matter what's going on, I'm going to worship the Lord. No matter how difficult or dire my circumstances may be, I'm going to worship the Lord. Now, it's when you draw back from that, and you don't just press in, that there's a captivity of some sort, some kind of a bondage in your life. Remember in Psalm 126 here, it says that at the end of verse 2, it says, they said among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. Does your Bible say that? Yes. That's a testimony that God's people had. That God who is with these people, he does great things for them. He makes a way when there is no way. He lifts them up when they really should fall. He brightens up a day when it shouldn't be bright at all. In fact, if you put your finger right there for just a moment and go to Psalm 137, which is just a couple of pages over, in verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps. That's what you make melody with and what you rejoice with. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there... They that carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us, required of us mirth or gleefulness singing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. People like joy. Years back when we were meeting as a church on Clay Street, in the summer we raised the windows up because it was obviously warm out. And we sang in those days with a lot of gusto. A lot of exuberance. There was rarely a time we ever met together when there wasn't a lot of people waiting for the worship to start so they could just really let go and and the people would come out of those little houses over there and sit along the wall. We were told later that they come out there to listen to us sing. I hope they listen to us preach too, but at least they came out to hear us sing. You see, you telegraph to other people by the way you act, by your demeanor, your person, your persona. You're telegraphing to other people, really, what's motivating you on the inside. When you're a cheerful person, doesn't mean you don't have problems, you do have problems. It doesn't mean there aren't discouraging moments in your life, there are. But it means that greater is he that is in you Than all the things that are outside of you, and you just respond to it, and you always have a good answer, and you're just a cheerful person. You don't just quit and lay down and say, well, I'm just not. You don't do that because God means more to you than for you to act like that. And so just cheerful attitude is what we're supposed to have. We're supposed to carry it with us. You and I both know people here in this room that no matter what day of the year or what's going on, you talk to them, they always have a smile on their face. They're always able to respond with something positive and cheerful because there is something in these people, in us, that is greater than all the trouble that's outside of us. We can't solve the world's problems God will solve what needs to be solved when Jesus comes. But in the meantime, God's people are going to be joyful people. We are the people who know the joyful sound. When making merry melody in your heart unto the Lord and sing with grace in your hearts unto God. That's the kind of people we are. When we don't do that, when there's a resignation to some pressure in your life, and something invades your life and suppresses you, and you cave into that, you're bound. Now, you may never admit it, but you're bound because you're not responding to God. Something else controls you. Something has mastered you, and you're not responding to God the way you should because you're bound. Now, how does this captivity come? That's where we ended last week in the first point I made about that, it comes because people are uninformed. I said misinformed, but we can use the word uninformed. And we refer to Isaiah 5 and verse 13, it says, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Isaiah said, my people have gone into captivity. My people are bound. My people are under the mastery of something besides me because they have no knowledge. Now, Wednesday night, I said this about the word knowledge or knowing. In Ezekiel, there's like 61 times God says, and they shall know me. The word know is a relational word. It implies, in the spiritual sense, it implies a relationship. When you know somebody, you relate to somebody. Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, that was in a different sense and fellowship, but it implies a relationship, a connection. Jesus said to some, I never knew you. While he offered to us, he said, you shall know the truth, and he is the truth. Mm-hmm. You come to me, you relate to me, you take my yoke upon you, and you learn of me, and your whole life will change. Now, you'll be tempted to give it up because of the pressure and the harassment you're going to get from your buddies. So you got a choice you got to make, and I gave you a will to make a choice with, so I can either bless you or reject you, but you got a will. There are those who make good decisions, good things happen, and they're blessed. Now, in this business of being captive and getting loose from captives, if God is teaching me something, if God said, this is the way, this is what I want you to know, the purpose of knowledge is to draw me into a relationship with God so that the effect of what is known motivates me to honor the one who can be known. That's what knowledge does. We don't know how to walk in this life until somebody shows us a way. Knowledge opens a door for us to walk a right way. God does the same thing. He opens our eyes to behold wondrous things from his law. That doesn't mean we're going to walk that way. It means we can. You still got to make a right choice. But to know God is to relate to God. To know about God is just a superficial academic church knowledge. Doesn't mean anything because it never changes a life. But when you know him, it'll change your life. Not everybody's life on Sunday morning is being changed, but there are those that are. Jesus said these words, remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, I never knew you. But Lord, we've been in church. We are charismatic. We prophesy, we cast out devils, we work miracles. And he said, we had no relationship. You took divine things Made a ministry out of it. You found a lot of success. A lot of people followed you, but I never sent you and I don't know you. What a sad commentary on religion. But it shows you the power of knowing. Back in our verse here, Isaiah 5.13, he said, My people are destroyed. God says, My people are destroyed. They're being made captive. They're being carried off to another country. My people are losing what is given to them. They're being robbed of what belongs to them for one reason. They have no knowledge. Either people are not teaching them or they don't want to hear it. Because secondly, where we finished, and I'll pick it up now, rejecting the knowledge that God gives is a reason captivity comes. You just don't want it. You set it aside. Look in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, rejecting the knowledge. It isn't hard to preach a sermon. It isn't hard to listen to a sermon. What is difficult is taking what you hear and applying it to your life, and you all know that because the devil fights you every step of the way and gives you all these reasons why you can't do it or why you're not ready for that. Man, I ain't ready for that. Oh, man, my game plan is ruined. I can't do that. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my friends. My parents, oh, man, I can't do that. That's what the devil says. But you got a job. You got a choice. You got a decision to make. What God is showing us is designed to loose the chains of bondage. When you're willing to come and hear what he has to say, what he's willing to say to you is what he will honor and what he will do in your life. Now, you may not want to do that. And if you don't, here's what he says to you. And here's the consequences of it. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do something. Gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, which means they shouldn't be doing. Gave them over to a reprobate mind, useless mind. Reprobate means useless. Vain. A mind that is never spiritually fertile. It may have a lot of noble ideas and a lot of designs, but it's nothing that God is inspiring That's in the religious sense, and in the worldly sense, a reprobate mind is full of foolishness. Wine, women, and song today. That's what the world's about so much. Like the music world, the world of darkness, wine, women, and song, or drugs, women, and song. It's just a world of corruption, destitution full of reprobates. Now the Bible said, your Bible says in that verse that there are those in the last days who will not like to retain, keep what God is showing them in their minds. But they reject it. A lot of reasons, a lot of excuses, but they reject it. And what follows, look at verse 29. He says, and being filled with all unrighteousness, I think this is what I just mentioned about the world today, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding. Covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they would do such things are worthy of death, they do the same things and take pleasure in it. Sounds like the headlines of either the evening news or the morning paper. People are killing people today just because they can't stop killing. People are mad and people are angry. They hate you. They just hate I mean, they wake up in the morning and they're mad. And they're so easily ticked off. They lust for things. They're in a state of tension and they're not happy. Most of them don't even live to be 30. They're just crazy. This is the hour that we're in, but also this is what happens. God offers a way out of that kind of a life. And people don't want that. Their excuse is, well, I'm not ready for that stuff. And consequently, this darkness begins to really take over that person's life. And they're turned into a darkness they never get out of, never escape from. They walk away from a wonderful opportunity to live with God for an eternity and trade it in for the pleasures of this world. This is what happens to them. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. Keep going to the right over there just a little bit and see if you can find 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Now as Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also, notice these words, resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the truth. Did you see that where they say they resist the truth? What is church folks' problems with truth? What is it about truth? Why is truth so offensive? Why does a declaration of the word of God, why does it offend church people? When you preach about tongues, for example, why do people just go ballistic? Or talk about a head covering and, oh, they're just this, oh, that's just, why? What's your problem? It shouldn't be like that. The word of God is not intended to be offensive. Jesus said you shall know this truth, and what will it do to you? It'll make you free. So you won't have that problem anymore. You don't wrestle with stuff like that anymore. If, for example, let me think music. These fellows won't mind. If one of these guys with instruments was playing, and I've observed this in my lifetime, and they kind of got to playing. And they kind of really got into it. And then they really got into it. Until their head was going around and they were just hammering on that thing pretty hard. And I went up to them afterwards and I said, I'm speak the truth. I don't think that's the way you ought to play that in church. And really any other time. We're here to blend in music together so that a spirit of worship comes forth. I'm not put on a show. We're not here to see how fast you can move your fingers. Did I possibly tell him the truth? So he puts his guitar in his case and said, Well, get somebody else to do it then. Now, people do that to God. Now, they don't do it that way, they do that to me, or not to you, whoever told them the truth. Just like one of you young girls. If your dress was too short. And we took a vote. How many of y'all in here think this girl's dress too short? And 80% of the people voted, yes, it's too short. Man, I'm just going somewhere else. church then. See, you're not going to get free. You're bound. You've got a way you want to do things. And you don't like your style to be changed by a bunch of judging people. I don't care how true and pure what you said was to that person, they're not going to respond to it. They're not going to do it. That's why people aren't getting free, because they just reject the truth. If I saw you driving through town the other day and you were scratching off and throwing gravel and went sideways around a curve and you were, because you're Charlie Cool or whatever, whoever you are, and I pulled you over down there at the McDonald's while you're out there sipping on something to give you a spiritual ticket. No, I pulled you over there, saw you there, and I said, Brother, I just saw you driving like a wild man. That's not a good testimony. You shouldn't do that. Now, one of two things. The truth will bring repentance or the truth will bring hardness. Just depends on who you're talking to, what kind of heart that person has. If I saw a lot of you in here, if I could individually speak to all of you, I'm not gonna do it. And I opened my heart up after 30 years of being here and told you exactly what I think is best for you, some of you wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like it. I didn't lie to you. I'm not picking on you, I'm telling you the truth. But I your opinion. Okay, it is my opinion, y'all think about it. Somebody once came here once in a while, They come once in a while, and they go other places the other once in a while. And had a complaint once and said, well, you're my pastor, and I said, I doubt that. So what makes me your pastor? You're only here half the time. And they were offended. It's the truth. That's the truth. Half the time, your joy is somewhere else, and then half the time, you're, you know. Somebody looks at me and tells me, I don't like this place. I'm telling you that I don't think that I'm your pastor. That's the truth. And people are so offended by that. And then the rumor mill and the phone and the ratty-tat on the little, you know, thumb-talking and bigger thumb-talking and... Next thing you know, Hamilton is just, he's so insensitive, and it's the truth. Truth. Truth will either humble you to where you say, you know, you're right, I'm wrong. A man pulled me aside up in another state, another city many years ago, and he said, you know, you use a word in the sermon tonight. That's you shouldn't use that word. That's not a good word. Now, my initial response was what do you know about anything? What do you know about anything? But as I listened to him, my heart smote me because of what he said, and I told him, I said, you know, you're right. I'm not going to use that word anymore, and I haven't. Just an adjective, but it wasn't necessary to be used. See, there are people who resist the truth. They turn away from the truth, and they turn to darkness. If you look also in... Chapter two, in verse 26, 2 Timothy two, that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are what? Who are taken captive by him, how? At his will. Is not the devil going about like a roaring lion seeking? He's looking for somebody he can devour. And when he does, listen, here's what happens. When he does, a captivity comes into your life, a kind of bondage comes into your life, and it is almost always evidenced by a lack of joy. Your life is not a cheerful life. Your time together is not a time of gladness of heart. All you would like to be, but... Maybe it's point 3 here. Maybe something that you spiritually allowed in your life is holding you down. Point 3 would be movers, movements and motivators. Motivations. Point 3, following movements, motivators or movers. That's my best I could come up with following ministries or personalities, movements, for example. Some new thing, some new ministry emerges on the scene. The rumor of some spectacular, something taking place somewhere, something unique or something different or something that we've never quite seen like this before. And, of course, they always use the Bible, and people are talking about it. It's on the Internet and all of that stuff. And and we begin to examine this and look at all of these things, and we're told about this new movement has taken place. Not long ago in Florida, there was a new, new anointing. A healing ministry came on the scene that those in circles like ours are beginning to say, this is what we have been taught for years was coming. This is it. This is what has come. And you zero in on one of those websites or presentations of some sort, and you see a guy in tennis shoes and blue jeans and a, a shirt and, and tattoos all over him and, and talking crazy. Oh, they use the Bible? Of course they use the Bible. Talk in a way that is not what promotes holiness. Kind of having fun with religious services. And all this is a man of God. There's a new sonship anointing. That comes out of the apostolic movement, which was going on. They talked about the fathering anointing, the fatherhood. Every church must have a father over it in order for the church to be a legitimate church, that fathering is an apostolic anointing. And you've got to have an apostle somewhere who is over this church as the father of this church. Otherwise, we're not legit. And people like that because, quite frankly, people get tired of the same old, same old. You know, hearing the word every week and coming with an attitude of ho hum, it just spreads around. And next thing you know, it's not any fun here. Well, guess what you brought? You brought it. And then something new happens, and then, oh, boy, something is new. And they jump into that thing, and they go, following somebody? There was a fellow that I knew up in Indiana back in the days of the prophetic in the 1990s, early 1990s. And a certain prophet had come on the scene at the spectacular background, had been sort of hidden for years, and then he emerges on the scene, and wow, this is almost God. And people in our circles followed the man, and not here, but they followed him wherever he was, and they sit there, and I don't think they listened to what he said, they were just waiting for him to do something. And along about this time, there was these laughing anointings barking and laughing, and people were just hysterically laughing in a meeting and crawling around. One, I saw a video of this one. The man had a dog leash or something on this guy, and he was crawling across the front of the church. <laughs> they said, this is the new anointing. Don't do that here. But there were people who thought maybe it was because the people leading it were such well-known well-accepted, spoken of all over the world, being interviewed on TVs, magazine articles about these people, and nobody was finding anything wrong with them, so maybe this is what God is doing. Ah! Now, some of us, not many, but some of us said, this is not God. Oh, and they looked at us like, get him off the tape list. I remember Zion Lake a few years ago, I said something about the laughing anointing. How sad it is that people would think such foolishness is an anointing. To just hysterically burst out in laughter in the middle of a service, maybe during the altar, go, ah! and then start barking and jerking like it would down there in that other Florida church. I said something against it. The lady came up after it was over. She was two twelve. That's a boiling point. (laughs) Had tears in her eyes. She was so mad that I would find something wrong. She said, I was in it, and it has changed my life. And and what do you say to that? You don't say anything. You say, well, I'm glad your life is better and all of that kind of stuff, but I'm just telling the way I see it. Now, I find out a few years later where this same lady moves in a friend's church, a guy that I know. Oh, this lady needs to be saved. Talk about a troublemaker. Whew. But she's one of those kind of people that control like this. She had an experience that was not sent by the Lord, but she didn't want it not to be of the Lord and oppose anybody that said it wasn't of the Lord. Truth isn't going to set that lady free. It will not. So this is what happens to people. The prophet turned out to be a homosexual and an alcoholic. The one the sonship ministry that I started out with turned out admitted deceit and lying, and had him another woman, left his wife and ran off with her. That happens a lot. Now here's the point, here's where the captivity comes. These people who were so sure of all this stuff, drove hundreds of miles, spent a lot of money going to these churches and getting involved and, and promoting this sonship anointing. This one who wrote the article in Indiana a few years ago was telling how the prophets, they agree with us. And he was up at Faith Assembly he said, Oh, everything we believe here and been taught here, this is what they're preaching. I thought, you're in a box. And the same person went to Florida and I never heard of him all these years, and finally another little letter goes out that this new sonship tattooed anointing is the real deal. Taking his son down, having prayed for special revival service on a Friday night for a revival anointing, I'm taking my son down. I'm getting in line. And then all of it turns out to be a fraud. Now here's where the captivity comes in. You've been had. You've been had. You opened your mouth wide, and somebody stuck a hook in it. You were just looking for something new. You were just tired of waiting on God to do something, and so when something happened, you were sure it was God. You dove in, and look, you've been lied to. You've been deceived. Wasn't God at all. That isn't what he was doing. That's not what he was saying. That guy that laid hands on you, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Then you get depressed. The bondage comes in when you begin to think, I just can't take any more of this. I've been in five movements in my life. The leader dies and one and all these other people turned out to be less than anything. I, I'm just going to go back wherever I can go to church and get and just go back where I used to be and just worship. Not anymore. Used to. Used to be really exuberant. Dancing and not now. Now nah, you've been shot at and hit. You've been wounded, and it's hard for you just to repent, admit after all them letters you said and all those testimonies you gave about what's going on and it all proved to be wrong, now you just, I need to keep my mouth shut. You just sort of cave in and give in to all this kind of stuff. Here's what's happened. I'll quote you one, Isaiah 9, 16. For the leaders of this people cause them to err for the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Can I kindly suggest to you that you need to be careful who you follow, and that you need to be careful what you follow. Because if it's not of God, it's of the devil. Never a time like the hour we're in right now when that ought to be a priority. What am I following? What am I believing? Who's teaching me? How do I know it's right? Bible speaks about that. Take heed what you hear, take heed how you hear it. How you hear it, as well as what you hear. Jeremiah 23 and verse 32 says, behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not nor commanded them, listen to these words, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. The people are not better off because of some spectacular movement. I know you bought a t-shirt. But it didn't advance you spiritually. You're worse off than you were. You hang your harps in the willows, you hang your head there too. And all you can remember, for those I'm talking to, all you can remember were your foolish mistakes, your gullibility. Man, I can't believe my eyes. Every time I follow something, it just seems to turn out to nothing. Well, you need to question what you're following, of course. Sometimes people get in bondage because they're in bondage to a person a leader god has used in our lives and in many of other people's lives in other ages god has sent spectacular exceptional unique ministries into the world maybe not to the whole world but to locations localities i don't know why this is god's work i mean why would he do anything here shelbyville why not a big city, you find very, very little that has any value in it going on in any big city. But he picks these places where he does things. But God sends people, unique people. Back in the middle of last century when I was born, I was born before the middle. But last century there was a great healing campaign. God poured his spirit out in 1904, 1905, up in Los Angeles. And from then, things began to flow all across the country. A movement of healing ministries came forth, all kinds of ministries and tent meetings. And God was making an announcement in the last days that I am going to get everybody's attention. And he did. The newspapers came. Indifferent people came, curiosity seekers came to the big meetings. They saw dramatic healings take place right before their eyes. I mean, new eyes, new legs, new teeth. I mean, there was nothing that wasn't done. It happened. God sent these ordinary people with special and unique gifts. They weren't so overly educated. I think William Branham, from what I've read, he was not an educated man. But he was gifted with the gifts of the Spirit, probably above all the rest of them. And you know when somebody like that comes into your life, wherever you were at that time, or when these people come along and they have an effect of changing your life. God used people to change your life. Their message or something that they did or said or just being there. Or they laid hands on you and you got healed. Or they laid hands on your child. Or they did this. Or they said a word and fixed your marriage. Or they said this and they just said something. They had an effect on your life. A man. A special somebody in your life. Somebody who really touched your life. My life, you know... Was probably affected more by Hobart Freeman than anybody else I knew. I had never heard anybody say those things like that before. I just happened to be where I was when I was, and tapes just happened in those days to be invented, cassette tapes, and you were able to hear people without actually going there. That was new. And just somebody special came into my life. He wasn't a physical specimen, wasn't anything spectacular about that, just, you know, a man that had polio, walked with a limp, but had a lot to say to people who were hearing nothing. I was just in a denominational church hearing whatever denominational message the preacher brought forth, not really knowing if it was right or wrong, and really not even caring. And then somebody came along and started defining what these words I've been hearing meant. Just defining them. I don't think he was a perfect man. I'm not sure everything he said was exactly the way God wanted said it. But he said what he said, and God blessed people, blessed me with it. But I did not, in those days, I did not come to the place where if I don't have him, I can't make it. It never came in my life that, oh, boy, what would I do without him? When Brother Freeman died in 1984, I got a phone call. I called Mrs. Freeman back to convey my condolences and my sorrow at this, and she was her usual cheerful self. She said, well, you know, he lived what he believed in his convictions, and he was so forth, and and he's with the Lord, and we're just happy about that. And she said, you know, now, we're gonna find out who the Freemanites are. Now, she told me that, those were her words. And I said, well, I think I'm one of them. She said, well, we'll see who stays with the message and who doesn't. Because you see, some people are only doing well when somebody is in their life. The biblical story would be like, Joash in 2 Chronicles 22, Joash and Jehoiada, the high priest. As long as Jehoiada was around running the show, little Joash, just a boy whose aunt hid him so his mother, Athaliah, wouldn't kill them all. She killed all the kids. They hid one, and this one became king. And as long as Jehoiada was in his life, boy, the nation survived and they did well. And when Jehoiada died, Joash just went backwards and it went into a decline again. See, there are people who can't do well without somebody else in their life. That's bondage. And you're a captive to somebody else to whom you have settled all your hopes and dreams are in a person. No church should fall apart and die because the pastor died or because he left or went somewhere else. It shouldn't be. It should not absolutely should not be. But it happens, and it happens a lot. It shouldn't be because God never sent any man to replace himself. Never. I used to understand that the followers of Branham could not follow anybody else. They would just put his tape in a machine and listen to his messages only. That's all they would do. Because there were no more Branhams. There was nobody else to follow. They couldn't find another one. There's no more Freemans. Nobody else like that. People who used to sit there whenever he died, there was nobody to take over like him. There was not a clone. There was nobody who said it the way he said it and had what he had. Nobody else touched their lives like this man. And everybody that tried to do that was just, nah, he's not quite enough like him. And they just drifted apart. They just drifted. Until now, what was once there is no more. I remember one of the leaders up there, a guy I used to to minister with. He wasn't going to park in this cornfield the rest of his life. Cornfield was good to a lot of people. A couple thousand people meeting in a cornfield is not a bad-sized church if you like that many people. So you begin to promote this and other things. same minister called me once. He was going to go listen to some other preacher that was had a little different direction. He said, man, don't tell anybody I'm going. Boy, they'd have a fit up here. That's not leadership. That's lightness and foolishness. And there's no more Freemans. No more Branhams. No more whoever good old brother so-and-so was in the Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist church, wherever that they left or they died and there's nobody else like them, the church just quits. It just dies. Because the people are bound to that man. My respect for the people in my life who touched my life is immense. But I owe my soul to Jesus Christ and nobody else. I praise God for ministries. But I'll tell you something that has changed since the death of all these great ones. God started with this healing ministry in the 1900s. And then in the 60s, he came and settled everything down amongst all those that heard about the great things that God is doing, and then he brought teachers just brought teachers. Right. And for the first time, people listened to more than 20 minutes of a sermon. <laughs> yeah. Some of these guys talked for an hour, a whole hour. <laughs> but they found that because of the influence of this word and the knowledge and the blessing, they begin to want more of it. Teaching. And in these last days in the, Trials and difficulties come, and all these great teachers, and all of them are gone now that I that I knew of, they've all passed off the scene, and what's left ain't going to be followed by nobody.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm serious. I don't mind saying this. What I see of what's left in places like this, nobody's ever going to look at anybody like myself and say, Whoa, whoa, what would we do without that? They just say, oh, he's all right. It's like God is taking the shine off of ministries. If a ministry has any value at all, it focuses and points people to Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. We don't need a picture of anybody over here and listen to somebody's tape. I like living souls talking to me. So if they say something I don't understand, I can ask them what they meant. You ever try to talk to a tape? What do you mean by that? It just goes around and around. <laughs> God sets ministries in the church. We might have heard spectacular things years ago that that's as far as a lot of people will ever go because if anybody says anything different from that in the days to come, they won't receive it because it isn't what so-and-so said. But God used so-and-so so far. And in the last days, he's going to finish his work with so much of an ordinary soul, ordinary people, flawed people, that those whose hearts are his are going to get what he said because he's going to speak to them various ways. Even your sons and your daughters and your old men. Better listen. Your old men will dream dreams. Mine are going to have to improve a lot. (laughs) I couldn't find my hand. I was dreaming my hand was gone. and Elliot, my grandson, hid it (laughs) and wouldn't give it back to me. And I was at a yard sale trying to find my hand. I looked down and it had grown back up to here. Now, thankfully, I woke up. But your old men will dream dreams listen to me. We're coming down in the last days in which it's the anointing. It's the anointing that will break the yoke, not a ministry. It's that which God sovereignly moves upon ordinary people like us and does when the gifts begin to flow, not from a pulpit, but from each other. When the body begins to minister to itself and begins to build up itself, then it's no longer brother, or sister, somebody. It is Jesus Christ. He's the one. Bondage. The fourth thing that holds us captive, folks, is sin. S I N. Sin. Plain old, ordinary, vanilla flavored sin. And all the various ways that sin comes, it manifests itself like this. I will not. I refuse. I'm not going to do it. That's what sin is. There's not a soul in this room that cannot obey God if you want to. And the reason we don't obey the Lord, whoever we are, is because we don't want to. I'm not going to do it. I value how I am viewed by other people more than how I'm viewed by God. Therefore, I will not change over to live God's way because of what would happen to me with people. That's sin. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin is rebellion. We speak it all the time, but in Ephesians 2, he said, You hath he quickened? who were in sin, he says, and we were by nature the children of disobedience. We were by nature. We were naturally rebellious, disobedient children. The father of lies worked in us, controlled us, held us captive. And we couldn't get out of it. I did have a vision once in my life, years back, and seeing people in a cage, iron bars, And nobody could hear them. They were inside of people crying out for deliverance. And nobody would try to take them through deliverance or deliver them. Wouldn't speak the truth to them. You can't get people free by appeasing their conscience and helping them feel good. Then nobody will ever get free. The only thing that will make you free is truth. And we were so concerned about being socially right that we wouldn't tell people what they need to hear. We don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want them to feel bad. We don't want them to stomp off. They're pretty sensitive. And if you say the truth and they respond adversely, that's sin. That's why so many people in the church are bound and do not have the joy of the Lord. Why they are not strong and why they give in and make excuses and cave in. So what shall we do? Looking at all of these things, what shall we do? I'm going to give you two things to do, and then I'm going to close. One, examine yourself. Look at yourself. What is your personal evaluation of yourself spiritually? What do you see when you look at yourself? Are you really a spiritual, joyful, exuberant, person or are you in a decline, a stalemate, or stagnant? Where are you? Where are you? Whatever your situation is, if you're a joyless person this morning, and it's because of bad choices and sin, failures and disappointments of the past with leaders, Maybe you need to just repent for allowing yourself to be so vulnerable and just admit your sin. You'll never repent until you're willing to admit you're wrong and he's right. That's how you repent. That's why you repent. Second thing you have to do, second thing is fight. Fight. If I ask you this morning, how many of you want to go to heaven? I would like to think that there would be a mustering up of everybody here to say, me. I would like to know, and I would like to realize at the end of my life, whatever it is, and you never know when it is, but i like to know that when it happens, I go to heaven. Because if I don't, I have played the role of a fool in this life, and the things I cherished are the things that destroyed me, because I wouldn't let go of them. So what do I do about fighting? Well. One verse, 2 Corinthians 10, verse four and five. For the weapons of our warfare are not guns and bullets, carnal things, natural things, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, any stronghold is an area of bondage and captivity. Guilt of what you said yesterday guilt of where you were last night, guilt of what you said, guilt about what you drank, guilt about what you smoked. Not everything's a cigarette today, but there's this thing about wanting all of this stuff. And so when you do that, your conscience says you shouldn't have done that. So when you go to church, what do you do? You fold your arms and sit there because you're not allowed to worship and praise after what you just did, the way you live. You're in bondage. And the devil's winning the battle. And if you died the way you are now, you wouldn't be a happy camper. You've got to put more value on your life and on what God offers you. You've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and do what you got to do. The devil ain't never going to quit fighting. And if you don't fight, he'll whip you every time. As we used to say growing up, he'll put a whooping on you. And then you'll get thinking in life, well, you're supposed to be whooped. But he said, the weapons of our warfare are not conquered, they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And notice what they are. Casting down imaginations. That's these mental pictures the devil gives you of how weak you are, how insignificant you are how ugly and awful and guilty and terrible you are. These are the pictures, imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Your way is a little better. I know God said that, but here's how I see it. And here's what you do with that. Here's where the fight is. And bring it into captivity. Now we're back captivity again, but this time it's good. Bring it into captivity every thought, To the obedience of Christ. Now, you can't do that, one, if Christ is not in you. And secondly, you can't do that if the knowledge and the words of Christ are not living in you. How can you bring all the things you're thinking? For example, you hear the sermon, you hear this spectacular ministry somewhere, so you listen. You're trying to be discerning. And you're listening to this guy to say, now, you know, nobody's perfect. Nobody can be perfect. And I know the Lord says that we're supposed to be holy people. But come on, folks, let's understand that that ain't what God meant. He didn't mean we're supposed to be holy. He just means that that we should aspire to holy things and do our best. That's all. We're in the flesh. We can't be perfect. Now, you should capture that one. That thought that put in your mind, giving you an excuse for why you're sinful. And while you're not even trying, you need to capture that thought and bring it down to what you've been taught. If you've listened, you've got something to bring it to. If you haven't been paying attention, you're empty. But if you've been hiding this word in your heart, then you've got something down there to fight with, don't we? What is this sword of the Spirit? The word of God. The word of God. You got no swords, you got no word. You got no words, you got no swords. You got no word and no sword. You got nothing to bring anything captive to. What do you bring it to? Jesus? What did he say? I don't know. Well, then how are you going to control and capture thoughts and overcome things that you don't even know what he said? You let the preacher tell you what he said. You didn't remember it. You assume that the educational system that brought the pastor to your church and the seminary that made him skilled and gifted and right and everything he says is okay, and you you know nothing. And so when the enemy comes in like a flood, there's no standard that is raised up against him concerning the word because you don't have any word. Best you got is vacation Bible school. Onward, Christian! You know songs. You know about Christmas, away in a manger. You got the baby birth, you got the, uh, up from the grave he arose. Then here's what we say. Here's what church folks say. I don't know all that stuff about the Bible. I'm not really into that. Boy, are you opening yourself up to bondage. Because the devil can say about anything he wants to. The preacher can say whatever he wants to, and you don't know if it's right or wrong, and you're a subject to error. He said the people who lead you cause you to err. You can't fight, so you give in. You don't know how to resist the devil, so you just take your licks and have the philosophy that, well, you know, in this life, this is the way it's going to be. Because the preacher said that. Wouldn't it have been nice if you could have captured those thoughts Or even taking a note and said, I'm not sure about that. And capture that thought and bring it down to obedience. And then say, that ain't what the Bible says. That's not what the scripture says. I will not retain this or follow this. I'll put it under my feet. If you can't do that, if you've got nothing living and alive in you to challenge whatever you're hearing, then you're vulnerable. I don't care what church you go to, I don't care who you sat under, whose ministry you've got all the tape. I don't care. That isn't what sets you free. The thing that will make you free is what's in your heart. You got to hide it in your heart, The word you got to hide it there in such a way that you count it a treasure. And anybody that speaks not according to this word, Isaiah said, they have no light. And if it's not light, it's darkness. And it binds and it makes captive and it leads you into darkness. Because you sit there with your arms folded not having a clue as to what the Bible says about this or about that, and never searching the scripture after you heard somebody because it's no big deal. And 15 years later in your life, there you sit, unable to worship, offended by noise, no discernment, weak, fearful, All the things that troubled you that you got delivered from 30 years ago, it's all come back. Isn't that a shame? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But God said in Hosea 4, 6, because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. Because you have shunned and turned away from my word. Listen, this is a whole generation I'm speaking of now. He said to these people, because you have rejected my word, I will also forget your children. And look how wild kids are today. Wild and unruly and vulgar and nasty. Not all of them, not all of them. Killing in schools and fighting and beating and hurting, challenging and getting even. He said, because you have rejected knowledge of parents, I will also forget your children. How sad is that? I think a lot of parents one day when they face the judgment, they're going to wish that that preacher they thought was so nice had spoken the word to them, that he'd have jumped up and down on them and said, you better keep this in your heart because this is what you fight the devil with. And if you don't fight the devil, he wins. You lose, you and your children. You lose. Mm -hmm. For us, it's better than that because we can fight, we can win, we can overcome. All things are possible to us because we've got a living word. That's like an assurance policy that as long as you stand on this word and hold fast to this word, this word will make you free. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to minister to these people this morning, minister to all of us, to mark that the hour we're in is a late hour and we've been told to redeem the time, to take advantage of opportunities, to listen carefully to the words of truth for you're speaking your words in this hour, not through spectacular, learned, accomplished vessels, but just through ordinary people. And your anointing that comes in this hour is designed to break yokes, to loose us from bondage, and to set us free. My prayer, Lord, is for this church that everybody here will be free. That the truth will invade every heart and have control and authority. And that instead of making excuses, the people will repent. I ask you to bless this congregation, this church as the great shepherd of the sheep. Lead us to those still waters and green pastures and restore where it's lost the joy of thy salvation. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh God.